This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's Modern Week podcast. I am Steve Sleiper, and this week I'm joined just by Ken Levin. So how, how are you doing this weekend? You're pretty good. Can't complain. All right. So uh, let's do promote, extend, and trade. And again, perusing Wikipedia, on this date in 1936, <laughs> uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he was elected to his second term as president. And then if you fast forward to 1964, uh, Lyndon Johnson was elected to his first – he was elected for his first term, but obviously because of JFK's assassination, he was already president. But um, I was doing a little research, and I couldn't actually find why those two guys are the only ones that we refer to using their three-letter initials. I was trying for like 10 minutes, you know, not really too in-depth. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that I could really piece together was that the Roosevelt's and the Kennedy's are like American nobility – I guess, quote unquote, and it was customary to use their middle names for, you know, official correspondences and such. And you don't, save, you uh, don't refer to uh, William Howard Taft as WHT? Right, exactly. I mean, Dwight <laughs> Eisenhower will say the D, but we don't refer to him as DDE, or George Bush is George W. Bush, but, you know, he's not GWB. That's the George Washington Bridge, not George Bush. He should probably rebrand to that. Yeah, it would be better. I mean, he's George W. Bush, so his branding is already terrible. I mean, any any kind of rebranding would be better. Yeah, naming yourself but, after uh, one of the most trafficked bridge bridges in. It's <laughs> still better than George Bush. I mean, good career move. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so in honor of those two presidents whose nicknames are their three initials, what baseball players? that are also known more commonly by their three-letter initials, are we going to promote, extend, or trade? First, we have JBJ, Jackie Bradley Jr. We have GMJ, Gary Matthews Jr. And we have EYJ, Eric Young Jr. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think um, as much as this pains me to say as a fellow Central New Jersey resident, uh, I think we have to trade Eric Young Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a particularly good reason for 
promoting Gary Matthews Jr. Other than I think he had at least one like very good season. Not for the Mets, but maybe I'm misremembering Gary Matthews Jr.'s playing career. But um, I think the obvious extend, ironically enough, is Jackie Bradley Jr., who I, I know had like one, at least one five war season. Yep. I think. Yeah, Gary Matthews Jr. had one like all-star type campaign. So, yeah. They also extended him, but I switched Gary Matthews Jr. and Eric Young Jr. Mostly because I remember Gary, Gary Matthews, Matthews Jr. had a very bad Mets tenure. Yes, like basically I have negative <laughs> negative memories of him, and I remember so um just he just seemed very insufferable, and his father of course too. Mm-hmm. Whereas Eric Young, he wasn't good, but like. It was hard to dislike him. If you had to guess Gary Matthews Jr.'s triple slash as a Met, what would you say it was? Mm. Let's go with 192, 260, 340. Uh, So you're almost there on both average and on base percentage. But you're a full hundred points high on the slugging. <laughs> oh my god! I didn't know that. Yeah, one ninety two forty. Uh, one ninety two sixty six two forty one. Guess what the 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 weight it is? The WRC plus seventeen. Thirty eight. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> still yeah. not good. Thirty six point nine percent K rate, which is like twenty full points above his career norm. But he did uh, bat fourth for the Mets at least once, so yes. go figure. <laughs> All right, well, that was a little disappointing, and that's a good segue, I guess, into the meat of our <laughs> episode today, which are the St. Lucie Mets. And, uh, you know, coming into the year, expectations were kind of tempered. The, the, the players that were projected to join St. Lucie at the beginning of the year weren't exactly too exciting of a group. And when the official rosters were announced, sure enough, you know, there really wasn't too much in terms of uh, prospecting goodness. There was Desmond Lindsay, who he ranked 14 coming into the season. Tony DeBrell, who he ranked 15. And Jordan Humphreys, who he ranked 20. Uh, DeBrell, he had a fine year. Uh, we'll talk about him more in a minute. But Lindsay, he only played in 15 games and he struggled thanks to all the injuries and Humphreys ended up not even playing with St. Lucie. Um, the rehab from Tommy John, there was complications beyond what we uh, were told or expected, whatever. So, you know, prospect-wise, it was not good for St. Lucie. Uh, their pitching on paper was pretty good. For the year, they had a 339 ERA, which is fourth uh, best in the Florida State League. And among the starters that spent at least half their season there or so, Tommy Wilson paced the team. He had a 201 ERA. Tony DeBrell was next. He had a 239. Uh, when Joe Cavallaro was starting, he had a 302 ERA. Kevin Smith, he had a 305 ERA. Kyle Wilson, he had a 380. And Luke Rennie had a 383. Problem with all of that, though, is the numbers are nice, but by and large, there really is not 
too much talent in that group, or at least high upside talent anyway. Yeah, a lot of them were kind of old for the level. Yeah. Um, Debrell, his stuff's solid, but, you know, he has kind of major command issues, and he really struggled in double A, and he needs to figure things out um, if he's going to progress as a player. Smith, you know, the stuff isn't really that great. It's kind of loogie-ish, and he probably ends up as a lefty reliever. Joe Cavallaro and Tommy Wilson, they kind of have reliever profiles too, but I'm not really sure about their chances. And then Kyle Wilson, he's young, but the numbers aren't really that that great, the peripherals. And Luke Rennie, he's, you know, older, so I'm not really sure about their chances either. So, yeah, great numbers from that group, but not really too sure about the odds that those players ultimately make it uh far in the in their minor league careers or you know become major leaguers yeah all of them are like a, a bit light on stuff mm-hmm. flaws red flags for everybody um of them you know debrell and smith are the two marquee names i guess if you want to say call it like that and i think that there's a lot of um, not confusion, but I mean, let, let's hone in on Kevin Smith here because that mm-hmm. is where there's a lot of dissonance. I guess it's a better way of putting it. Uh, Baseball America, they have him ranked in their top 10 Mets prospect list. And I think that that is fairly silly. Um, It's not a great system by any means, the current, you know, Mets minor league system, but to have him in a top 10 list is doesn't make sense to me. And MLB.com, too, their their prospect list also has Smith in the top 10, I believe, or just outside of it. And I haven't done my list yet, but just kind of the vague ideas that I have about where I would place people. Smith is not in my 10. Uh, I don't even know if he makes my 25. Yeah. I think he'll be in my 25 just because I'm really going to be grasping for names at that point. Yeah, I mean... Like, it's it's really not a good system. Once you get past... Uh, even, even in the top 10. Like, Zamora, get... Zamora was in our top 25 last year, and I think he's not too different a prospect from Zamora. Except no, that he's agreed. still a starter, you know? Uh, but I agree with you that he's, you know, kind of meh. I mean, we've, uh, I don't know where Baseball America and MLB prospect pipeline got their, uh, reports from, but I mean, we, we've gotten firsthand reports of Smith too. And, you know, it's, it's not bad, but, you know, like we're saying, it's probably ends up being a loogie profile, which, you know, as a Major League Baseball piece is a pretty valuable and important thing, though going forward, I know the rules about rosters are changing and, and how many batters pitchers can face will be changing, so their there utility will always actually... be, um There will always be a need, though, for a guy who's very oh, yeah, good absolutely. one specific thing, you know? But uh, as their val- the value for a player like that as a major league player is much greater than their value as, quote-unquote, as a prospect, if right. that makes sense. 
that's how guys that, you know, like think of the, the Paul Seawolds or the Chasen Bradfords or the, who was the guy that went to the Rays? He was a left, Adam Kolarik. Mm-hmm. Guys like that, you know, don't really get any attention paid to them. And then they end up making the majors and have, <laughs> you know, so-so careers, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. But you know what I think careers. part of it is? He's a guy who there's a lot of hype around with um, spin rate. Mm-hmm. Basically, like, everybody cites it in their write-ups. And, um, you know, that's not necessarily an indicator that a guy will be good or that the pitch is actually good. It's just, like, one attribute of it. Mm-hmm. I think that might be part of why Smith got so much helium this year. And his fastball was about, just off the top of my head, 88 to 91, 92. So, yeah, we give him the benefit of the doubt and say as a reliever it might be, like, 92, 93. Yeah. Um, a good slider, a good kind of frisbee-ish slider. Mm-hmm. Uh, not much of a change, or or a second secondary pitch. So, I mean, that's that is the that's a loogie. Yep, that's a recipe for for a lefty one out guy. And it's yep. just weird seeing his name, you know, ranked to that high when ranked above like the upside. Starters like uh, Wolf, Santos, you know. I mean, I could understand if you're a little hesitant about guys like that with upside. I am too. Um, like, I don't think that I'm going to have any of those guys in my top 10 because I am a little cautious when it comes to just overall um, distance of making it. You know, I think there's like an optimum. Age, oh, not age, but once you get to Brooklyn, Columbia or so, I feel like any kind of worries about, you know, if this guy's too far away, I, for me, that's like my line. And mm-hmm. anything before that, it's it's just still a little too far. So, I mean, I could understand ranking a guy like him ahead of those guys that are much further out but have better stuff just because of, you know, proximity to the majors. Yeah. But even... Guys on the same exact team, a guy like Debrell. Now, I'm a guy that's always been very high on Debrell, but I don't see how you can look at numbers or stuff because they both have, you know, positives and they both have negatives. And rank one extremely high, perhaps too high, and then not even really rank the other. It just seems like it's a very, it, it's, it's odd to me. Yeah. But hey. At least we're having a conversation, I guess, about about this, about guys on the St. Lucie Mets pitching core. <laughs> because um hitting was another story. <laughs> As a whole, the team hit what did they hit? Two forty three, three twenty, three thirty six. And believe it or not, that's actually an improvement from last year. So that just goes to show how in the pits uh, St. Lucie's offense has been the last couple of to years. To be fair, it's a tough park to hit in. It is, it is, but... But yeah, also not great job. <laughs> yeah. Quinn Brody, he spent about a third of the season there. He was their best hitter. Um, in 53 games, he hit 285, 335, 435. Not... 
amazing, you know, but first center fielder, that'll do. After him, Jeremy Vasquez hit 277, 359, 378. Good average, good on-base percentage, but as a first baseman, a 378 slugging percentage and five homers is not going to cut it. And then speaking of the power department, uh, we got a team leading 11 homers out of Carlos Cortez. And his batting line was 255, 336, 397 overall. You could kind of make the case that Brody might get himself a major league playing time in a year or two as like a fourth, fifth starter, you know, Kevin Kazmarski-ish kind of guy that maybe gets a handful of at-bats or whatever and is kind of shuttled up and down. But you really have to squint to see any kind of future for like any of St. Lucie's hitters. I assume Carlos Cortez will make the big leagues just because they have something into him, you know? It's just an investment into him. Last season, after he was drafted, he didn't perform particularly great in Brooklyn. And you could chalk it up to, obviously, A, it's Brooklyn, and B, coming off of a a year at at college. Yeah, and a a deep, like, College World Series run. Yeah, so, okay, you you can give that an asterisk. But this year, you know, again, like... The, the hitting, we know that he's not that great of a hitter. The power, you know, he kind of changed his, his approach and mechanics and everything uh, while he was in school to kind of have more power. And 11 homers, like, it's better than it was last year, but it's still not particularly great. It's basically all he contributes, you know? Yeah. I mean, there were very few doubles, very few triples. They're just all homers, which is why his his slugging percentage was below 400. It's just a, a you know a year and some months removed from that pick. It's still is puzzling. He's got a cup of coffee in him. Yeah, <laughs> at least one. I mean, I don't know I, if it, if he'll be any good, but I, I think guys who get a million dollar signing bonus get a shot at some point. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be pushed along. I don't think that he has anything left to prove in St. Lucie. It wasn't a great season, but it wasn't like but yeah, I don't know catastrophically what... terrible that you have to hold him back again. So he'll he'll start next year in Binghamton, and he seems like a guy that'll probably benefit from the juice ball in AAA. I could see him having like a Dilson Herrera esque season if he ever. I was gonna say he reminds me of Dilson Herrera a bit in Mm. terms of like positional fit, body, uh, but without like the athleticism that made Herrera like very interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. With with Cortez, the thing that everybody you know kind of hones in on is the positional versatility because he was. Um, a switch hitter and a switch fielder and therefore could play like anywhere and like the problem with that is you know it's all fine and dandy if you could play left field in theory but you know he's not good at it yeah I'm like you know just throw a guy in as as throw a guy in left field just to get his bat in the lineup that's as big a part of my philosophy as anything but like there are limits yeah, so you know. he is kind of he he might have the theoretical versatility to play other positions, but I mean he's kind of stuck at second. It's really just the, second and maybe left field. 
Yeah, um, that <laughs> makes the Dilson comparisons that much stronger. Yeah. And my birds are, like, going crazy in the background, so they <laughs> must really hate Carlos Cortez. Oh, no. Yeah, wow. But, yeah, like, just all in all, it was just not a good year for St. Lucie. And I really can't think of a, of a single game or a single week or single period, whatever, that St. Lucie is actually good or even, like, exciting. I wouldn't say exciting, but they were, like, pretty good deep into the season. They were just out of the races because, um, you know, Wander Franco was playing clear, Clearwater. Or not Clearwater. Tampa? I forget. Who the Reigns affiliate, affiliate is. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. They they ended up winning the title when the season, you know, was abruptly ended. Uh, the Threshers, I believe, Threshers. won. Yeah. Either Threshers or Dunedain. Either or. Yeah, whatever. Well, actually, we're <laughs> going to talk about them in a little bit after the break, but whoever it was. But I don't know. Like, I think the most noteworthy thing about St. Lucie's season was that on July 4th, the stadium lit on fire. <laughs> <laughs> what an image. <laughs> and when your season is literally like a dumpster fire and you have a dumpster fire, that's it just doesn't look good. Not a good look for them. Um, you know, that happened in, in June. They had a 12 game losing streak. Anytime you have, I mean, excuse me, August. Anytime you have a losing streak like that, it's, you know, not good. A couple of games, okay, that's not good. You get swept, you know, maybe even you lose two series in a row, you get swept twice. That's like pitiful, but 12 games, that's like, that's a lot. And, uh, yeah. It's That's like almost two weeks of losing. Yep. And then really the only thing that stopped that losing streak was then the season was ended um, in preparation for Hurricane Dorian, which thankfully never, you know, made landfall here. Well, or really here anyway, destructive landfall. Um, so, like, that was the only thing that kind of put an end, a merciful end to their season, I guess. Because that would have probably been either three or four more losses at the rate that they were going. And one thing that they did not need was more losses. All right, well, well, let's take a break here. Enough about the bad things about the St. Lucie Mets. Uh, When we get back, we'll talk a little bit about St. Lucie as a whole. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. I'm Steve Seifa. I'm joined this week by Ken Levin. And Ken, you spent some time down in St. Lucie this year, huh? Yeah, I went for just a day in um, spring training in March. So first and most importantly, do you have any Florida Man stories? Because I was was looking into some of the Florida Man (laughs) archives, I guess. (laughs) And there are a couple of good ones that took place in St. Lucie. Probably the best, <laughs> the best one is Wet Willie Attack puts Florida Man in jail. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> There's 
Port St. Lucie man gets DUI on lawnmower. <laughs> uh, Florida man throws whiskey bottle bomb at chickens. Oh, wow. I'm not really sure how that works, but that seems a little extreme. Um, Florida woman tells cops that the wind blew cocaine into her purse. <laughs> which, you know, could happen, so whatever. Uh, similar to that, there's Florida man with pockets full of drugs, says pants were borrowed. And then I think this one was my favorite of all of them. Uh, Florida woman covered in chicken wing sauce and blue cheese gets arrested for assaulting her boyfriend. <laughs> so did you have any uh, negative encounters with stereotypical Florida men? And I, I, I would say no, not necessarily, although driving up there was an experience. People, especially... You know, that's not really northern Florida, but it's northbound, I guess. <laughs> uh, people drive like they have a death wish. It's, it's wild. <laughs> Was it on, um, I-95 or I off think, of I-95? I think I-95. I think so. Yeah, uh, I, I but. I drove down to Florida. I mean, I didn't drive. I was the passenger, uh, when I was like, 14, you know, 13, 14, whatever, like we went to Orlando and, and Disneyland or World, whichever one. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have too many memories of the driving part of it, except for just, you know, it being long. Yeah. Well, we only drove up from Miami because we were uh, on vacation in Miami. So we rented a car and drove up to the uh, the complex for a day. Mm. Um. But yeah, people drive like there's no tomorrow. Like they're driving away from from imminent danger. <laughs> and as a as, you're a New Jersey native, born and yes. raised, and everything, and I feel like New Jersey has bad drivers. Um, um, so I would argue that New Jersey does have bad drivers, but it's for completely different reasons. <laughs> it's because like everybody needs to be somewhere all the time in New Jersey. I can I can agree with that. Uh, it's like a, a state full of like aggressive businessmen. <laughs> I, can, I can agree that I mean I mean I live on Staten Island, which is also known for for just fair share of bad drivers, and I can agree with that characterization that yes. it's it's full of bad drivers if you are a passive driver. If you are an equally aggressive driver that you're going somewhere, then you know everything is fine, which I yeah. find. No, I, I agree with that. Florida's just, you know, whatever is behind you in the rearview mirror is terrifying and you <laughs> want to outrun it as quickly as possible. I, I felt that way when I was driving down from uh, Harpers Ferry to Kingsport and Pulaski over the summer because it was it was a it, an interstate route. I think it was I-85. But it literally is going through Appalachia, and you have, like, giant 18-wheeler trucks that are doing, like, 70 (laughs) on these not exactly hairpin turns, but, I mean, you know, on a highway somewhere I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Literally in the mountains. Um, Yeah, it could be a little... Yeah, trying trying to make those deadlines. Yeah, it can be a little nervous when you're looking back and you see this truck, like, coming on you really fast. Um, so yeah, 
kind of wild. St. Lucie was basically like all farmland and swamp and empty like 50 years ago. Um, in the 1970 census, the population was 300. In 1980, 10 years later, the population is 14,690, which is an, incre- an increase of 4,351.5%. And today it has an estimated population of about 195,000 people. So it's a pretty, you know, solid small town, uh, small city, whatever you want to call it. And there's stuff to do from what I gather, but like spring training baseball and then the GCL and the St. Lucie Mets, they're like the biggest thing in town. So does the city kind of embrace like baseball as a whole? Yeah. I think having like a, a big, a big league team, having like their home base there uh, is, is like a pretty big point of pride. Like not too dissimilar for, I guess for them uh, as having a big league team, you know, in your town, you know, like I went to, uh, we were running a little bit late, but you know, I, I always need coffee. So we stopped at the Starbucks on the, that's maybe right across a couple blocks away from the, the complex. And like four different people while I was in line, like wearing all my Mets crap, uh, asked me like, Oh, you're a Mets fan? Yeah, no, that's awesome. You know, tons of you guys are coming through this time of the year, you know? <laughs> um, so I can't say for certain not having spent a lot of time there, but it, it seems like it is kind of like the center of town in a lot of ways. Definitely like a big employer. Uh, just given how big the complex is, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if during spring training the city swells to like three times its usual size. Mm. Um, I've never been there myself, and honestly, I don't really have too much of an interest in going. I know it sounds kind of weird, but yeah, uh, I'm terrified of flying so that's like a major problem right there and i would have mm-hmm. to drive all the way down to florida which i'm not really uh too interested in doing because you know that's a hike yeah you'd have to plan it as part of like a two-week trip or something yeah and i'm really the only driver in my small group of people that i do you know minor league baseball things with so mm-hmm. i'm not taking on a 20 25 hour trip whatever it is right but um what what is you know what's it like the the complex and and uh, first data field and just you know the the Mets facility as a whole like what's it like um, to just kind of go there and just like oh here's a here's a field and okay here's field B and field C and D and there's just oh yeah no, all over the place great. it's like it's like um you know I have a short attention span so it's great to have <laughs> four baseball fields each with exhibition games going at the same time you know. Like, literally, the day that I went was uh DeGrom was throwing a sim game against Cindergard, and it was literally like I'd bounce from one field, and, oh, Ronnie Mauricio is, you know, facing Jacob DeGrom right now. And then on the field behind me, Francisco Alvarez is catching Junior Santos and just kind of bouncing between those two is just awesome. Like, highly recommend it. Yeah, it's like um, sensory uh sensory baseball overload. Yeah, it's like what I do at home with, you know, MLB.tv, but like in real time just turning your head. <laughs> um 
with guys you'd never get to see. <laughs> um, yeah, and like the facilities are very nice. Um, the fields are, are kind of simple in, on the backfields at least. It's like, you know, probably not too dissimilar from, you know, a park field, <laughs> mm-hmm. well maintained park field, uh, you know, dugouts with, with chain link fences and stuff. But, uh, in the center, there's like a big sort of office. Um, and yeah, it was just cool to walk. There's just a bunch of people, you know, from ranging from pretty much everybody who works for the team, uh, to just random, you know, Jim Oaks like me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Did you encounter any alligators? I did not, no. Okay, good. Um, supposedly there were snakes on the backfields, um, Either the day we were there or, you know, in the, the recent past, cause like four people mentioned it, but like, you know, I didn't see any firsthand evidence of that. Alright, good. <laughs> um, I was looking at attendance in the Florida State League and it's actually really weird. Um, Dunedin, uh, they're the Blue Jay affiliate. They drew 11,757, um, fans all of last year which is all at the bottom and then the Clearwater Threshers they were at the top they drew 180,069 and the two teams are literally like 10 to 15 minutes from each other uh, Dunedin was playing at a temporary home this year since they're building a new stadium but them being at the bottom goes back you know a couple of years and obviously it's near Tampa and their major league club and everything. But as somebody from the north here, where we have, you know, more, less mild weather <laughs> during the spring, you know, we could have freaking blizzards in, in April. Do you have anything to say to the people of, you know, some of those smaller drawing Florida teams that just don't take advantage of the really nice weather that they have? Um, I mean, if I lived, you know, down there with multiple big league complexes around, I'd, I'd probably be at a complex pretty much every day. Um, <laughs> at some point, you know, I think that's yeah. really cool. Like getting to see the earliest wave. Um, just, I mean, obviously, I guess we are not the, we're not the best people to kind of profile since we are the definition of. You know, oh yeah, no, we're total dorks. Niche, um, niche fanatics, whatever. But yeah, but yeah, yeah I mean, I'd, I'd be around a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, the the Staten Island Yankees are like fifteen minutes from me, and whenever the Cyclones are playing, like I'm I'm always there, and I don't go to every single Cyclones game because it's in Brooklyn, which is a kind of pain in the ass to get to either taking, you know, the the ferry and the train and everything or driving and having to pay freaking $20 toll, which yeah adds up pretty quickly. But, I mean, if that wasn't the case, I think I'd be – I would have one of those, you know, 40 or, or possibly even full season kind of ticket plan for the Cyclones and Trenton and uh, whenever Trenton Thunder are playing – Binghamton down there at Arm and Hammer Stadium. I'm, I'm, you know, go to 
majority of those games, which unfortunately is usually only one series. And same thing with um, Lakewood when they play the Columbia Fireflies. You know, I'm, I'm there. And then unfortunately they didn't play them this year, so I had to go down there, which is <laughs> was fun for the pain. <laughs> yeah, like, not not as easy. Um, yeah. They are coming up twice in this upcoming Yes, year, right? I know, I know. I'm happy for that. <clears throat> My car is not happy for that, but I am. But, yeah, like, if, if there was literally baseball north, south, west, and east of me as a Florida resident, I'd be going to games constantly. And I just, will say that there's probably a lot of competition uh, for, you know, non-sort of, like, industry, uh, like, the, the general population to come to games. Yeah, I mean, just you have, give it. There's so many of them all clustered in an area. Yeah, uh, you have a couple for of teams. Logistical purposes, but also, you know, make some things kind of hard. You have the couple teams on the Atlantic coast, then you have a couple of teams on the Gulf of Mexico side. And then on top of that, then, right, there's like the FSL teams. And then there's the GCL teams, so there there is quite a bit going on. But to me, that would just mean great baseball every night. Yeah, <laughs> you can vary it up a bit. But yeah, it's uh kind of crazy, just all, all all of the stuff going on down there that you don't really realize, and how clustered everything is. Because Florida is, you know. I don't know off the top of my head the length of it, but it's not very wide. I mean, if you're kind of in one, if if you're on one side of the state, you can drive to the other side, lengthwise, uh, excuse me, widthwise, in about yeah, it's something an hour and like, a half or so. Yeah, it's something like two hours or something. Yeah, like that. so I mean, it, it's you know, I, I would be all over the place, but I guess yeah. it's a good thing that I'm not down there. <laughs> Uh, any other stray random observations about St. Lucie that you made while you were down there and or the uh, St. Lucie complex first out of field, all of that? Uh, not really. The The ballpark is really nice. Um, there's a lot of different areas to just chill, which is cool. Um, I like in the outfield, they have like a little grass area you can just kind of lay out on. Um yeah, would highly recommend it as a as a trip. Mm. All right. Well, uh, if anyone has any questions, comments, whatever, you could go ahead and send us an email at our email address from complexthequeens at gmail.com. You can follow us all on Twitter. I am at Steve Seifa, and Ken is at Ken1191. Subscribe to the podcast if you don't. Um rate and review it if you haven't already and obviously thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with a recap of the Binghamton uh, Rumble Ponies and their 2019 season and until then love the Mets love the Mets